0: We know that the capitalist system is not, it's just not set up to do that. Capitalism is not about healing. (laughs) And so I think the question of like, what else is there? What are the things that could offer that kind of mending and that kind of soulful connection? It feels like that's part of what art can do and must do in this time.
1: Hello, and welcome to Art Restart where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina's School of the Arts. Just like in our last episode, we'll get to hear from not one, but two art makers, director Lear de Bessonnet, and creative producer Clyde Valentin. Each of them is a powerhouse in the field of participatory, community-based art making. In 2012, Lear founded the acclaimed Public Works Program at New York's Public Theater, which has involved a wide array of community members in all five boroughs in the making of thrilling and life-changing theatrical events. Her theatrical projects have landed on the New York Times Critics' Picks list many times and have earned her several awards. Clyde, who co-founded the Influential Hip Hop Theater Festival in 2013, also created Ignite Arts Dallas at SMU, a project that since 2015 has been bringing innovative art making and healing to communities in every corner of that city. So imagine what could happen if these two activated their wonder twin powers. And I just dated myself, didn't I? Well, Well, guess what? They have. Lear and Clyde are the co-artistic directors of a brand new national initiative, One Nation, One Project, that will bring together 18 places around the United States to simultaneously premiere, in July of 2024, distinct, collaborative, and participatory artworks on an unprecedented scale. One Nation One Project recently announced its first cohort of nine sites, and lucky we, the Keenan Institute's hometown of Winston-Salem is among them. The Institute is working with several local partners, including the Arts Council of Winston-Salem and Forsyth County, Forsyth County Department of Public Health, United Health Centers, and the City of Winston-Salem Department of Community Development to support the program. I do want to make sure I list the other eight sites, just so you can get a sense of the diverse communities in which One Nation, One Project will be working. They are Gainesville, Florida, Chicago, Illinois, Utica, Mississippi, Providence, Rhode Island, Rhinelander, Wisconsin, Harlan County, Kentucky, Edinburgh, Texas, and Phillips County, Arkansas. Lear spoke to me from New York and Clyde from Dallas. I knew that Lear had for years been dreaming of creating a new version of the 1930s Federal Theater Project. So I started the interview by asking her how she finally made it happen.
0: Oh, thank you for that question. Yes, the Federal Theater Project has been on my radar for a long time as this sort of bright star of inspiration. And I feel like just to, to name a couple of the things that are so Remains so deeply inspirational for me about the Federal Theater Project. I think it's a moment, a unique moment in American history when from 1935 to 1939, America, this country, and the government made a significant investment in arts at the community level. So not just arts happening in a couple of urban centers, but really the idea that people all over this country deserve to have the arts as part of their daily life, part of the fabric of their lived experience. And one of the unique things about it is that really it was using a moment of societal crisis, which of course feels familiar and resonant right now, right? That they were able to take the depression and all of the many overlapping crises of their time and actually, you know, energetically move toward how the arts could meet that moment. And in a sense, the biggest flaw or vulnerability is that really the whole thing was from one funding source, the federal government. So it was something that, you know, it was a faucet that got turned on. And then in 1939 and, you know, one day in Congress, suddenly the faucet was turned off and it went away. And I think one of the things that I've been interested in conceptually is just thinking about what it would mean for a version of a truly national investment in arts and culture at the community level to be held by multiple sectors so that there wasn't this feeling of a single faucet that could be turned on or off, right? And part of what has happened with One Nation, One Project is it's really about three sectors coming together. It's local artists and the municipal sector, cities themselves, the mayor, the city manager, and local leaders, and also public health workers, specifically community health centers and the network of federally qualified community health centers. And it feels like it sort of takes a cord that thick to be sustainable and strong over over time.
1: So when you're talking about the health of a community, the arts impacting it, it's not metaphorical health, it's also literal health.
0: Oh, yes. Physical health and mental health and societal health. We sort of think about health in all three of those ways, physical, mental, and social health. And I think that for me, the, the aspect of this that is really referencing physical health is not something that as an artist, I ever expected to have be part of my trajectory. You know, I've been creating community engaged theater for close to 20 years now, but for about 15 years, really specifically in this model that became the public works model, which I spent about close to nine years at the public theater, uh, founding the public works program there. And That was based on some work that I had piloted in both San Diego and Philadelphia before that. And my entry point to that work was as an artist. I am not a social worker. I'm not, you know, a social scientist. And I'm certainly not trained in any sort of (laughs) medical field or, or public health, but because with that work, documentation was an important piece of it, right? Watching what happened over time and telling the story of individual community members and the group as a whole, as they spent multiple years engaged in participation in the arts. And part of what we found that was so remarkable to me was that there really were these drastic health benefits for arts participation. And it was Everything from people, you know, being able to control their diabetes and much lower risk of both depression and dementia and people recovering more quickly from surgeries. You know, we also the mental health benefits are just enormous. This has been well documented. But, you know, for senior citizens, increased mobility. And one of the things that actually uh, Paloma Hernandez, one of the health partners for One Nation One Project, was able to frame something really beautifully for me. She talked about how from a public health standpoint, you know, two of the biggest obstacles that she as a person who runs a network of community health centers deals with is, you know, if people are able to see the doctor when sick and take their medication regularly, just those two things alone make an enormous difference and yet those are those are two areas that it's really hard to figure out the direct solution for those things you know it's not it's not something as simple as a as an injection of a vaccine right that it's like someone being able to take their medication every day and see the doctor when sick that there's a there's a lot of social factors that go into that right that relate to where people are in their lives what support structures they do or don't have And those are areas where the arts play an enormous role. We've seen, and this is not just in my work, I now know that this has been studied in many, many art practices. Um, And Dr. Jill Sonke, the University of Florida Center for Arts and Medicine has done a lot of deep work in this, that when someone is participating in an art project where you know they know that if they are not able to show up at rehearsal the next day people will notice they will be missed mm. their presence is wanted that is such an incentive to take your medicine and yes to go to the doctor when sick and and to commit to you know if you have a stroke and need to do some really difficult physical recovery to do that because people there's a sense of of purpose and meaning and we all as human beings that deep need for for meaning and for Communion with others, knowing that we matter to other people. Those are some of our deepest needs. And they are, I would say, medicine adjacent, right? They're not, <laughs> but they certainly are part of health. And we know part of both individuals and communities achieving their best state of well being.
1: Claude, you have a long history of producing work in communities. What are the special challenges of this one? And how did you and Lear work together in developing, for instance, the criteria to be one of the selected 18 communities? How can you describe how you refined the project as a whole and its goals?
2: Lots of collaboration with a number of partners. I mean, when Lear reached out to me a little over a year ago, I was just enthralled by the idea and the ambitiousness and the scale of the vision and what was possible. What Leah's pointing to about what she experienced through her practices is something that we shared when we worked together, I think back in 2015, 2016 on the introduction of the Public Works program here in Dallas, Texas. And, you know, me and alongside with uh, the Dallas Theater Center team, uh, doing that work, laying the groundwork, building out the collaborations and then leading up to The rehearsal and production process was transformative for so many of us. And uh, that work continues to this day at the Dallas Theater Center. So when she reached out with this, I was just like, wow, we get to create a space for more people to engage in this kind of work across the country. And we get to tell that story and give ourselves permission as artists to operate at a scale that is significant and yet non-commercial, but arguably with incredible, meaningful, and long-lasting impacts. I was there for it. So we jumped in, and we started having conversations through the networks that Lear had been cultivating, uh, others that I started to bring to the table. And a key individual that connected a dot for us is Dr. Jeff Levy, uh, who's a professor at George Washington University. He introduced us to his colleagues at the National League of Cities and specifically the Institute for Youth Education and Families. They're kind of a subsector uh, within the NLC. And uh, we started talking to them about the idea. And, you know, first I think they were sort of entertaining us as artists and, and you know, being thoughtful and kind, <laughs> you know, with all this. <laughs> and, and, and then we were like, so what's it gonna take? What's it gonna cost? To, for us to work together. And, you know, we know that, you know, resources is often, you know, the rubber meeting the road. And they gave us a number and Leah and I started going out and raising the money for it, you know. And we modeled our criteria off of some existing frameworks that they had been running. They've been running city cohorts are uh, related to policy and equity in relationship to policies across cities, towns, and villages, their member organizations. And what we've been doing is sort of creating a synthesis of that framework alongside some of our practices that we have are bringing to the table and our team members are bringing to the table and synthesizing a cohort process that we're actually about to embark upon pretty soon. And it's exciting.
1: I imagine that since you're not being federally funded, there less there's less of a chance that a tap will be turned off for a variety of political reasons as happened in nineteen thirty-nine, right? That's
2: right. right. But you know, that's 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 key there, Pier Carlo, because I think part of the initial vision was to also realize a municipal and public commitment alongside these other aspects, right? So in many ways, I mean, we, we don't necessarily use this language explicitly, but, uh, the manifestation of each site will be a public private iteration of the work on the ground. And therefore to Leah's point earlier, like, you know, hopefully we'll make it more sustainable, especially as we're producing this evidence based learning that is going to be critical to propelling policy change on the ground around these intersections.
1: Now you'll be working with in these nine initial communities are both urban and rural. And since 1936, a much greater percentage of the nation's populace lives in urban areas, which may be one of the reasons why there is so much more of a greater rural urban divide than there was 86 years ago. How are you hoping one nation, one project might bridge that divide? Ooh,
2: <laughs> great question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, I'm a native New Yorker, Pierre Carla. I don't know if you know that, but I was born and raised in Brooklyn. Uh, so, you know, I'm yeah, your, your city. Yeah, your accent
1: was definitely not Iowa. <laughs> I could. And, uh, I've and
0: been I'm, in- I'm from Louisiana. So, we, we oh, okay. represent. All right.
1: Yeah. Your <laughs> accent is not Iowa or Louisiana. So, anyway.
2: Oh, it, it, it'll, it'll slip out depending on, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, uh, you know oh, okay. <laughs> Totally, and, and I, I think this this uh, this resonance for me, you know, it's it's interesting because i when I when I look east, I'm I'm looking at the deep south, and Louisiana is our state next door. Um, you know, I could be there in three hours. I spent a, a lot of time in that state. Leah and I were having a conversation about coral fish a couple days ago.
0: Actually, <laughs> yes, we were. Um,
2: and uh, and you know, when I look west, I'm in the Southwest. And and for me, you know, even coming to this geography was you know a, a way for me to expand my own cultural literacy about the United States of America. You know, I've had the fortunate opportunity to travel and produce in many major cities and you know colleges and universities and smaller towns, but you know, having spent time in place here, you know, in parts of Mississippi, um, North Carolina, you know, now across Texas and into the Southwest and New Mexico uh, has been incredible for me. You know, to really open my eyes around sometimes what I believe to be the limited discourse on the on the coast, right, be uh, the West and the East Coast about. You know our understanding of what nuance is. You know culturally you know, across our country, so it's it's just been a really uh, fascinating entry point into exploring uh, again notions of home and uh, how we express them.
0: Yeah, and I think part of the the desire for a national project that truly was did have both urban and rural and suburban and frontier and reservation, all of those different geographies exist within it is just the awareness that so many of the really painful cultural divides and and sticking points. It feels like we're essentially as a society in a place of bad faith. (laughs) We're not, we are not in a position of, of good faith. We're not in a position of assuming, of, of being able to trust and assume that there are shared values and that there's sort of a shared empathy. And I think people sort of on almost every side feel attacked and feel disrespected and not seen, not seen in the way they want to be seen. And it's interesting, once once things have sort of gotten to a place of bad faith, what does it mean to repair that and to come to try to find good faith again? And it feels like the process of listening, mutual listening, and actually giving people the space to articulate the way they want to be seen, you know? Witnessing. Exactly. Witnessing mm-hmm. It, witnessing with empathy, with joy, and again, with the sense of, you know, believing that a map of political divides or really any other kind of demographic map that could exist doesn't tell the truest human story about who we actually are, that each of us as a human being is is more complex than our sort of categories, right? we're We're more than what a census report would say about who we are. And certainly we're more than the kind of portrait that national news might paint of our place or people like us, quote, people like us. And I think that the desire on really all parties, the, the, the fact that nobody feels seen, nobody feels taken <laughs> care of, is a really interesting place for, for art to step in and play a role because there's some healing that has to be done there that feels like it's it's not healing that's going to be possible through just policy change um, it's not going to be possible through you know the existing systems and certainly we know that, that the capitalist system is not it's just not set up to do that capitalism is not about healing <laughs> And so I think the question of like, what else is there? What are the things that could offer that kind of mending and that kind of soulful connection? It feels like that's part of what art can do and must do in this time.
2: There's a a distinct meta-narrative that I think will begin to emerge as each site begins to tell its own story that I know that Lear and I and some of our, some of us on our creative team are intent to also tell, right? In celebration of the incredible pluralism and diversity that we know makes us strong as a country. Uh, so I think we have an opportunity to tell that story as well.
1: Have there been any unexpected or surprising commonalities across the nine sites that you could not have foreseen?
0: Um, You know, I think part of what has been inspiring is to hear places, the, the imagination around people like in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, for example, one of the things that they have acknowledged, so it's a, you know, it's a rural community in Northern Wisconsin, and it's a very particular geography there. And one of the things they have dealt with is youth mental health and in particular, you know, youth suicide. And part of the vision that they brought to the table was the idea of a youth arts skate park, you know, a gathering place that would be very much owned by young people that they would sort of co-design that would have a beautiful, you know, artistic expression. And it could also be a sort of venue for future gatherings. That was such a specific idea that was so particular to that place, right? And thinking about what would work there and, you know, Utica, Mississippi, the work that Sip Culture and Carlton Turner and their their friends-
1: Pass Art Restart Guest, Carlton Turner.
0: Yes. You know, that the work that they do in, uh, again, in rural Mississippi, in Utica, Mississippi- around food and story is so highly specific to, to place. Um, so it just has been inspiring, We're, you know, working with our friends in Harlan County, Kentucky at Higher Ground. Again, another very particular and unique geography. So I, I think it's really pointed to how much how much innovation can happen at the local level and how much you know, local people essentially know what's going to work there, (laughs) you know, and I I feel like when I think about it in the context of my hometown of Baton Rouge, I feel like, you know, if someone from the outside said, we have an an idea for a new crawfish franchise that we're going to start in Baton Rouge, that would be great, right? People in Baton Rouge love crawfish. But it's like, a person from the outside, probably wouldn't know that, like, well, actually, you know, the best crawfish is really not even had in restaurants. It's like at people's houses. It's in crawfish boils. It's served in newspaper on tables, and it takes all day. You know, it takes. <laughs> the, there's a long cooking process, and just all these things that, again, a, a local person would know that. You know, so it, it feels like any national endeavor, there really has to be a lot of of, of deference to the, the local authority on you know, that they're the authority on their on their place and uh, really what's going to work there.
1: Let's say there's somebody listening to this episode whose community, for whatever reason, wasn't selected for the project, or maybe they didn't even know about this opportunity. How would you suggest to this artist that they might go on their own creating the kind of healing One Nation One Project envisions?
0: One Nation One Project is not a sort of fixed moment finite like the the invitation and the values of it are something that are so large and encompassing and essentially like a lifelong invitation for for all of us. So I don't think there's any need to feel woe if one is not participating in this particular iteration and round. I think that the the kind of core principle of holding hands with people who have other expertise than, you know, if you're an art maker, considering the expertise of, you know, city leaders and community health workers and believing that there is a collaboration to be had there is part of the kind of animating spark here. And I think that is something that anyone can do. And in fact, even those three sectors are not meant to be exclusive. You know, there are other parts, other ideas that we'll see, how this all comes to fruition. but for example, we we know that we're deeply interested in libraries and in partnerships with libraries, right? And I think in many individual places, there will be other community partners, uh, other nonprofits that that kind of join the team. So I, I think essentially, fundamentally, I think for any artist to be interested in people, <laughs> to be interested in people outside of the arts, from other sectors and to really go into conversation looking for opportunities to collaborate and to bring mutual expertise to the table. It feels like that's kind of at the core of this and that is an ongoing invitation for anyone, anywhere.
1: If you'd like to learn more about Lear and Clyde and read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. By the way, if you haven't heard our interview with Carlton Turner, whom you heard Lear mention, please be sure to check it out. We published it in July of 2021. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks so much for listening.